On this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast, we are joined by T.J. Gentry as he discusses his book, Absent from the Body, Present with the Lord. Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while entering into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host for our time together, yours truly, Brian Chilton. Uh, we do want to let you know that the podcast is available on several different apps, and I do have some good news to announce to you that uh, the uh, problems we had with iHeartRadio have now been cleared, so you can go and listen to all the podcasts uh, from Bellator Christie as they're produced, and uh, and like I said, it's right there on iHeartRadio. So I think they've been now ranked uh, the number one app in podcasting, and we're just uh, privileged to be on board with that. Today we have a very special podcast and uh, with a very very special person with us today. Uh, we are joined by uh, Thomas J. Gentry, or as he's better known by uh, the Liberty folks as T.J. Gentry. Uh, T.J. Gentry is the senior pastor at uh, uh, Fellowship in Christ Christian Church in Carterville, Illinois. Uh, he's been in ministry for 35 years. He holds a D-Men and a Ph.D. from Piedmont International University in our stomping grounds here in, Winston, in around the Winston-Salem, North Carolina area. He's also a student at Liberty University. And in addition to that, he has a wonderful wife with five children. T.J., you are my hero. I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> five children. We mentioned before the podcast that uh, we have a hard enough time trying to keep up with one son, uh, but he has five kids. So, uh, T.J., we want to just welcome you to the Bellator Christie Podcast. It's an honor and privilege to have you with us today. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be with you. My, my privilege. So since this is a, your first time on the podcast, and I hope this is the first of uh, many times that we have you on the podcast, uh, let, let me, let's first off, um, if you will, pre, uh, give us your salvation experience. How did you come to know the Lord? Uh, it's such a joy to give my testimony. I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, I'm the fourth of five children myself and grew up in conservative evangelical church here in the same town I pastor in now. And at the age of nine, I was attending summer church camp, and in an evening worship service, uh, the invitation was extended for anyone who would like to ask Christ to forgive their sins and save them to come forward. And and I remember walking that aisle and uh, talking with and eventually praying with the minister who spoke that evening, and God graciously saved me. Now at nine, I had gone too deep and dark into the world, but I was still a sinner. And I trusted in Christ, uh, was baptized there at camp the next night. And interestingly, that same night that I was saved, 
I sensed the call to preach. And I remember sharing Brian that with uh, the folks there at the camp. And I, of course, I probably would have done the same thing. They patted me on the head and said, you're just excited about everything. It's probably not that the Lord's calling you. And <laughs> sure enough, he was. <laughs> and uh, five years later, I actually began preaching at the age of 14. But nine years old, I uh, came to faith in Christ and and I'm grateful for my Christian parents and, and their influence and all the people that God has used in my life since then. Amen. I can resonate with you uh, because I, w- I grew up in a Christian home, and and I think I was right around this. I was a little bit older. I think I was maybe about fifteen or sixteen when I had the call to preach. So I can I can resonate with that very well. So you just recently wrote a book. This is one of many that you've written. You've written other books entitled uh, "You Shall Be My Witnesses: Reflections on Sharing the Gospel," uh, which was published in twenty eighteen. And thinking of worship, a liturgical. Uh, Miscellany, I think I may have been pronounced that wrong, in 2011. But you recently published a book uh, by Whiff and Stock Publishers called Absent from the Body, Present with the Lord, Biblical, Theological, and Rational Arguments Against Purgatory, uh, which is a very fascinating book. I want to encourage everyone to get this. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a good read, and uh, it's very intriguing. So in the book, you describe the intermediate state and beliefs concerning purgatory. So, before we start talking about purgatory, uh, explain to our listeners what we mean when we talk about the intermediate state. Yeah, great question. So, so the intermediate state is a, is a theological term that speaks of where a person is, uh, what happens to a person at the moment of death, and in between or up until the final resurrection, or depending on how your eschatology works out, would call uh, bodies forth from the grave. So it's that intermediate state. What, what is the state of someone's existence from physical death until final resurrection uh, and the con- Absolutely. Are you still there? I am. Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. I had a little bit of a feedback on my on my end. I'm just gonna make sure everything was good. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. So in so this is the time, as you mentioned, the the time between uh, the death of the body um, and the resurrection that we find in, in uh, when when Christ returns. Um, so there are several different uh, theories out there. I know there's uh, the theory entitled. Uh, some people call it soul cessationism, or uh, many different terms for it, or where the soul ceases to exist at death. And then, of course, there are some people who believe in uh, soul sleep, that, uh, that it enters a state of rest. Um, in your book, you hold to soul survival, that is, that the soul consciously continues even into this intermediate state. Uh, so uh, what, what are the strengths of this view of soul survival and as opposed to some of these other views. So the, the idea that there, there is a, a conscious existence beyond physical death has strengths. One, it, it, it does meet the language and description of Scripture. Sometimes soul sleep advocates will say that the Bible uses the term sleep to describe those who are uh, 
who have died in the body, but I think that they miss that that's a, what's called the language of appearance. Uh, it's describing what appears there. Uh, but the, the tenor of scripture and even explicit statements reference the idea that there is this ongoing existence after death, uh, that there is an expectation that the believer has that to be absent from the body, which is a euphemism for death, is to be present with the Lord, implying there that being present means being conscious. Uh, conscious. Um, I, I understand, I think, the sentiment that drives the soul sleep position, Ryan. Um, I think they're wanting to, on the one hand, take Scripture uh, at a, a plain reading, but I think that what happens is they end up pitting Scripture against Scripture instead of letting it be its own interpreter. Uh, now, annihilationism, again, I think is a, is a good impulse for people trying to rationalize how is it that a merciful and loving God uh, would be party to any kind of eternal torment of a soul? So why not just annihilate the soul? Uh, the problem with that is it, it goes against clear teaching in Scripture, especially from the words of Jesus himself. It talks about the ongoing existence of those who are, on the one hand, physically dead, and on the other hand, separated from God spiritually. So uh, the, the classical position that has been maintained across denominational perspectives, across Christian traditions, is, is uh, the, the, what you call the survival of the soul, that there is an, an enduring conscious experience of the soul uh, after death. C.S. Lewis talked about, and, and of course we got to read this through the lens of the way he wrote with imaginative language, but he talked about it's wrong to say that we are a body that has a soul. He said we are a soul that has a body. And even without the body, we continue uh, in our soulishness. So, Yeah, I like that. That's, I like, like that description. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, the, 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 the classical position, um, which I think also is the biblical position, uh, is the, the ongoing existence of the soul after death. And thus, that raises the question of well, where is it? And then immediate state discussion all centers around that. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been amazed here here lately, and I don't know if this has to do with uh, the influx of some false teachings, uh, what we would even call cults uh, influencing Christian Christian thinking, or what. But I've I've actually come across uh, in, in recent years. An influx with with even evangelicals, conservative Christians who hold to these various ideas of like uh, of, of the soul annihilationism. Not not necessarily talking about the hell part, but that the soul doesn't survive death. Uh, what do you think may be causing? Do you think it could be an influx or influenced by some of these other worldviews, or uh, what do you think may be behind some of that? I think there are a couple of things at least. Uh, one. We may be one of the most philosophically poor generations of Christians ever. Yeah, now, now, philosophy is certainly the servant of theology, and we want to make sure we get our theology from the text of Scripture. The locus of meaning is always in the text. But if we do not have any, a sense in which we can philosophically think through things logically, rationally, uh, using deduction, induction, abduction, 
then we come up with what I think, quite frankly, are some really uh, poorly thought out, logically untenable positions uh, that affect how we think about, for example, the existence of the soul. So I think one, we're dealing with that. And I think biblical literacy is rampant. And you know, as a pastor, that sometimes I'm sure one of the hardest things to do is to disabuse yourself of the notion that there is a common level of knowledge in your congregation, even among the most saintly people. And gone are the days when a conversation can start with, well, we all know the story of such and such in the Bible. That's not necessarily true any longer. That's very true. Uh, and, and so I think that plays into an openness to considering these other approaches, these unbiblical approaches to discussions about the soul. Uh, and I, I think if there's a third thing besides the philosophy and the biblical literacy, I think that, that and this is a tough one because I don't want to count, sound uncaring, but sentiment drives the train so often in theological discussions because of that lack of philosophical and biblical precision that it just seems to feel better to say things like, well, the soul just has to cease to exist, or um, of course they're sleeping, because there's an emotional affective attachment to that, even if it's not rooted in uh, any kind of philosophical rigor or biblical worldview. Amen. Amen. So yeah, absolutely. So, so soul survival—that that's something I I, I really appreciated uh, your your perspective, uh, not only on the podcast but in the book pertaining to soul survival, because that's something that I think is uh, I'm with you. I think is strongly promoted in Scripture, and uh, it, it's amazing that we have for the reasons that you that you just mentioned. I think you're absolutely right, uh, but that unfortunately there are many who have fallen into the trap of thinking that you know the soul ceases to exist after death. And so that brings us to another issue, uh, one of the primary issues that you deal with in the book, and that's talking about purgatory. And and I was really surprised to hear how this view has actually infiltrated even evangelicals, and that really floored me. Uh, but before we go there, uh, in, in the book you argue against the belief in purgatory. So, uh, what is what is meant by purgatory? And in this this doctrine is something that's heavily found in uh, Roman Catholicism. So first, let's ask what the what is purgatory, and then we'd like to ask the question about uh, why do Roman Catholics heavily espouse this view? So first and foremost, uh, what what is meant by purgatory? Yeah, it, it comes from a Latin word that has to do with the purge or to, or to make kind of pure or clean, and it's the idea that when someone dies and, and they're a Christian, and, and I think it's important that we clarify at this point, uh, neither the Catholics nor the evangelicals that affirm purgatory are saying, at least not explicitly, that purgatory is an opportunity for post-mortem conversion. That the only people going to purgatory are already Christian. So in, in that sense, it's like, as I've heard them say, it's the vestibule to the, to the kingdom. It's, it's the foyer to the house of God. It's not a second time of conversion, but the idea is if I die and I still have the effects of uh, the sin that I've struggled with in my life and I haven't become uh, morally perfected, then before I can go into the presence of God and behold the 
beatific vision, the beautiful vision of God, because only those who are holy can see God, I need to be purged. And so that intermediate state is, uh, for purgatory advocates, is the time when there's a greater cooperation with the grace of God, and there's a true inner transformation that's occurring so that how long someone is in it, and it depends on the, the situation that they're dealing with in terms of the remaining effects of sin, uh, however long they're in it, at the end of it, they will be ready to see God and to enjoy heaven. Uh, and, and so it, it comes from that idea. Um, the Roman Catholics in particular, Brian, they, now I want to I clarify, I can't paint with such a broad brush to assume that all Roman Catholics think the same, especially in our, in our contemporary milieu. Right. Uh, but, because... <laughs> Some Catholics pride themselves on being what they would call the cafeteria Catholics. They pick this doctrine, but they don't pick that one. <laughs> the classical Roman Catholicism, and by that I mean they would say that, that they hold strictly as, as best they can to the magisterial teaching of the Church uh, and to what the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. They would say that purgatory is a necessary follow-on to the way they understand justification. So in the Roman system, justification is, is an initial process, it's an ongoing process, and it's a final process. Initially, you are justified when you're baptized, and that washes away the stain of original sin, and then it prepares you to enter into ongoing justification through participation in the life of the church and the sacraments. So You'll want to go to confession. You'll want to receive communion. You'll want to uh, do whatever good works you can as part of the church so that you can participate in that sacramental life. And then at the end of life, and including that intermediate state, that final piece of justification occurs. And if you read the, the language of the Catholic Catechism, I point out in the book that I think that there's a contradiction in the way they describe this, but... They basically say that final justification occurs for those who have to go to purgatory in purgatory where they work out the results of what their faith and their works bring about, which is making them right with God. And they would say that this idea that Protestantism has, that we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, and that we're declared just, is to quote the Catholics from the time of the Reformation, a legal fiction. And because it's a legal fiction, you really have a bunch of people dying who aren't right with God and ready to meet God, and, and so they need to go to purgatory to finish up that process. Uh, it's called, uh, to, to distinguish it from the evangelical perspective, which, which I'm sure we'll talk about, it's called the, the justification or expiation view of purgatory, where you're being made right with God, you're sent to be expiated, uh, through this life and into the intermediate state so you can finally be ready for heaven. So it seems like it flows from this idea that uh, God's grace um, may may be imparted to an individual, but that the person has to continue doing things to continue in that grace or, or something of that sort. So in other words, it's a work-based, almost like a that you enter into the to the faith by grace, but then you have to work to continue to stay in faith. Do you see it as something like that? 
I think so. I, I think that the idea within the best of Catholicism is that it's all of grace. God enables the, the person to cooperate. They still have to cooperate, but as they cooperate, then he continues to justify them. So their works are received based on God's arrangement with them that I'm going to give you the grace. If you respond to that grace and you do these good works, then I'm going to reward you with this ongoing justification. Uh, I'll couple that with the merit that all of the saints of the ages have earned, especially the merit of Christ, and eventually we'll get you there unless you just quit. Or if you die in a state of mortal sin, they distinguish between venial sins and mortal sins. The idea with the mortal sin is that it, it kills grace, which is a, think of it as a substance. That's my language, not theirs. as a substance that is cultivated and built up in the soul as you participate in the sacraments, and when you when you commit a mortal sin, murder, adultery, things of that nature, that kills that grace. And if you die in a state of mortal sin, it's very likely that you will not have the opportunity even to go into purgatory um, and be consigned to hell eternally, which is where the, the idea of last rites, uh, what is now usually called a holy unction or the anointing of the sick comes in uh, so, so that you can make the final confession just before you die and enter into the intermediate state in the best possible condition. Now, I, I'm sure that anyone who is evangelically minded um, and says, well, I go to the Bible primary for script, primarily from the top thing, is at this point going, really? Where does all this stuff come from? <laughs> Uh, and we want to remember that they have an entirely different approach to authority. It's not just scripture, it's scripture, it's tradition, and most importantly, it's how the church interprets scripture and tradition. Exactly. So the church becomes the highest authority for the Catholic. Now, I was surprised to find in your book that you, that you say that there are many evangelicals that are now embracing the idea of purgatory, uh, which is, as we mentioned, predominantly Roman Catholic. Uh, why do you see this as taking place, and and how do they go about justifying this from Scripture? Yeah, uh, I think it's taking place because there's a there's a good impulse within evangelicals to say, "Hey, we need to see real transformation and growth and grace." Uh, we we really do want to to assume that God not only declares us just, but He makes us holy in a sense that we become a holy people in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. And those within evangelicalism that are attracted to purgatory, influenced in part by the works of C.S. Lewis and others, uh, would say, we're not saying purgatory is about justification. We believe that Christ is the basis of our justification um, imputed righteousness, although there's some discussion around that thing. But by and large, they're going to say that. They're going to affirm key evangelical tenets like that. But they'll say, but, but we know people die without experiencing true holiness. And we also know, so the argument would go, that true holiness is a matter of cooperation. So if God determines to unilaterally change someone at the moment of death, 
Does that not make them less human? Does that not somehow take away their humanity because they're no longer cooperating? It's being done to them. And so this idea of purgatory as a place of continuing sanctification, and I want to clarify, the Roman Catholics generally talk about it as justification. Evangelicals are saying it's a place of sanctification. But they would say that, that that's consistent with we do need to be holy to come into the presence of God. Uh, God does really want us to change. Change is a result of our cooperation of His grace. And so purgatory then becomes a reasonable conclusion if you view it as sanctification to get people who weren't quite there at death, and, and I say that time in chief, uh, ready to be there when the eternity, uh, the eschaton is finally consummated. Do you, do you see there being some confusion, maybe perhaps too, on on the Bema seat? I was trying to find the passage of Scripture. I think it's in Second Corinthians where it talks about the works of believers being placed down and and the bad things being burned up, and uh, and but the person still surviving the flames and good things being offered back as rewards. Do you, do you kind of see that this may be some type of, at least in the evangelical mindset, uh, used to maybe justify this idea uh, however flawed it may be. I do think so. I, I think it does, uh, in, in part, uh, flow out of what I think is a, is a, a deficient eschatology, uh, not necessarily understanding what it is that's happening when a believer is judged by works. I think that, that some, uh, and, and I want to say this as a caveat, Neither the Catholics nor the evangelicals who advocate for purgatory try to say that there's any explicit scriptural support for their position. The Catholics will argue from a passage out of the Apocrypha, uh, but the, the evangelicals who affirm it will say it's a good and necessary uh, conclusion to draw from scripture. We have no explicit text on our side. Um, but what they'll do is, is they'll take a, a text like, Paul talking in, in 1 Corinthians 3 about how a believer's works, and he's talking to ministers primarily, will, will be evaluated uh, on the final day. He uses the word day several times. And though their works will be burned up, they will be saved, but as though through fire. And they say, see, there's an emphasis on the purging that happens. Works are burned up because they're deficient. And God, through fire, brings them on into salvation. That's transporting an entire system into that text. So let it say that. Paul never talks about a process there. He never talks about anything other than a moment. And he's specifically talking about works of ministry, leaders in the church. It does certainly have an application to every believer. But, yeah, I, back to your, to your point, Ryan, I think it is a fundamental confusion of eschatology, and, I, I, and it probably doesn't surprise you that many who will advocate for this, if not most, will have some variation of an amillennial approach to all things eschatological. Now, that doesn't mean that to be amillennial is to embrace purgatory, but there is um, a sense in which if you've spiritualized a lot about the kingdom and the end of time, then other things can be spiritually imported, which is what I think is going on with purgatory. 
that makes sense, you know, because in a lot of amillennial interpretations, you're right, symbolism is king, it, it appears, and then sometimes things can be stretched, sometimes I think beyond what the the text says, to be incorporated in. I like, I like you saying that, that's not true of all, all millennialists, but uh, by and large it does seem like that does happen more in that uh, perspective than necessarily uh, a uh, premillennial perspective. Yeah, for sure. So now for the meat and potatoes of your book, uh, give us some some of the reasons uh, that that you provide uh, why you reject purgatory and why why it is uh, a false doctrine. Yeah, so so I approach it from three perspectives. Um, I'm sin committed like you to the primacy of the biblical text. So first, I look at biblical texts that old and new uh, teach anything but purgatory and uh, just just one in particular um that we can look at is in the gospel uh where jesus is talking about the uh fellow who is not willing to be uh gracious uh it's in matthew chapter 5 25 and 26 uh, he, he's not wanting to agree with his adversary. This is out of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Surely I say to you, by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Purgatory advocates like to say, there's the idea there that there's a punishment that requires a payment, and when the payment is made, you'll get out. Well, a close look at that text in its broader context and even the language that's used there is in no way trying to communicate you get in trouble, you pay your fine, and you get out. But what Jesus is saying is the impossibility of ever making things right if you retain unforgiveness in your heart, which becomes tantamount to murder in your heart. And he's describing people there who because they refuse to show the love of God, when they, if they were to die, uh, will certainly experience an impossible scenario that they can't remedy. So if anything, that example from Jesus speaks to the finality of, of dying in, a, in a, what we would say an unsaved condition marked by hatred and unforgiveness and strife. And he's, he's not saying things can get better. Then there's also the, the biblical example that, that Jesus gives in Luke of, of uh, Lazarus and the rich man, and uh, the rich man is is in torment, and Lazarus is in the scripture says the bosom of Abraham, which is a, a description of the intermediate state of believers. And what you see there in, in Luke's gospel is is the scriptures describing how the person that has rejected God in this life is in a terrible state in the next, that they continue to choose, by the way. I, I do like C.S. Lewis's notion that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. It's a, it's a conscious, ongoing choice. And, and you see that that rich man is wanting to give orders to Abraham. He's wanting to contend with him theologically. Uh, he's wanting to say, Lazarus needs to do something for me. All the signs that he is not right with God. And... Abraham says very clearly, 
there's no crossing over where you're at to where I'm at. It's not going to happen. And so I think when you look at those texts, and, and I, I list several in the book, you'll find that when descriptions are given, whether in parables or in analogy or in explicit didactic portions of the text, all of the language talks of the finality of judgment. It talks about being either with God and right with God or separated. It doesn't speak to this getting things worked out in between. So, so there are the biblical reasons. There are also uh, the theological reasons. And the primary one I focus on, which is really at the title of the book, uh, is Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, where he talks about being absent from the body, uh, is being present with the Lord. And Paul's language there is building from earlier in the letter to that point where he talks about he has this explicit confidence that the, the theological basis for Christian hope is that when we leave this body, we are present with the Lord. And the way he's describing being present with the Lord in that context is present with the Lord in a place of joy, a place of uh, refreshing, a place of holiness. Now, none of that sounds like purgatory. I think also, Brian, that the theological uh, concerns that, are, that militate against purgatory have to do with this idea of the active and passive obedience of Christ. So that idea is that uh, what Jesus did in living perfectly to fulfill the law, uh, it, when, when we trust in him, God imputes unto us the benefits of that. So he, he, he gives us the benefit of Christ's active obedience. And then what Christ did in taking on sin and dying on the cross, what's called his active obedience, when we trust in Christ, God also gives us the benefit of that uh, passive obedience, I should say. So, so Christ's active obedience and passive obedience are given to us. But if that's the case, which I think Scripture clearly teaches that in numerous ways, then if I'm saying I need to go to purgatory to get something worked out, does that not raise the question of, did I really receive the benefit of Christ's active obedience? Because if purgatory is for me to work out the limits of my own obedience, then it sounds like, and this is where the critique lies, that the basis of my acceptance is my own obedience, which then raises the question, well, maybe I don't have the benefit of Christ's uh, active obedience being given to me. And it's interesting, uh, one of the advocates of purgatory, uh, Dr. Jerry Wallace, uh, Houston Baptist, he talks about how this idea of the imputation of Christ's active and passive obedience is not necessarily accepted by all evangelicals, and he seems to imply that he doesn't accept it, which then becomes the basis for uh, having some notion of purgatory as, as being sanctifying. And, and, and in that, you see the influence of people like M.T. Wright, um, people like those who advocate the federal vision, which is a Presbyterian thing, but this idea that Christ's active and passive obedience are kind of a passe notion, but that's really not the goal. So, so theologically, you've got those concerns. And then, and then rationally, the, the third line of, of argument that I list uh, I, I, I think that, that two things are going on with purgatory advocates. They have um, 
made an unnecessary tension between having true freedom and God doing something uh, monergistically and instantaneously to me. So uh, basically what I'm saying is I can still be free and God do something to me uh, that is wholly on his own. No one objects to that in principle when we talk about being justified. God wholly justifies us, and we receive it. So to say that I can't have that same experience at death with final sanctification seems inconsistent. Uh, and I certainly advocate libertarian free will, but I don't see it as inconsistent with me yielding to God. I, I, I think of it like this. I freely choose to go to a surgeon and have surgery. And then, because of my free choice, the surgeon does to me something entirely on their own that does truly change and benefit me. There's no conflict between my freedom and that surgeon's action any more than would be between my freedom and, and God's choice. And I, and I think the other uh, logical issue that we run into in the rational side is every person that I know of that advocates purgatory also believes that what John tells us in 1 John that when we see him, we shall be like him. Um, that uh, none of them would say, well, that's not, that doesn't mean what it says. They would all say, when we behold the beatific vision, there is some deep, immediate change in us because of our beholding of the beatific vision. Well, at that point, now we're no longer talking, does God do anything instantaneous to me? We're just talking about when. And I'm simply saying, if I can agree that he would do it when I'm in heaven, why would I not think he can do it if he reveals himself to me at death? What would be the rational need to say, well, he can only change me instantly in heaven if he changes me great, gradually as I cooperate with him in purgatory? I, I think that, that they're begging the question there of, does God change us instantaneously at some point? Yes. Do you see that as a violation of my free will? No. So I'm just saying there's a good reason the church has historically said it's at the moment of death. Now, now that's not to say, Brian, that there isn't a final resurrection and a glorified body. All that is wonderful. The intermediate state isn't as good as it gets, but it's really good. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But that's how I approach it, those the biblical, theological, and rational uh, arguments against purgatory. I had a couple of uh, a couple of questions uh, to, to pose to you as, as you were going through that, and mm-hmm. one was talking about uh, the idea of hell being locked from the inside. And I think you said that came from C.S. Lewis. Do, yeah, do, do yeah. you see the same thing as being uh, perhaps even for the punishment that uh, maybe individuals are punishing each other within the confines of hell? I, I think that's a very C.S. Lewisian uh, way to think about it. Um, he talks about in his uh, book, The Great Divorce, and by the way, I realize there's an irony that I'm appealing to Lewis to talk about hell, and he also teaches purgatory, and I disagree with him there. <laughs> but having said that, he's not the 67th book of the Bible. Um, he, he, uh, he, he talks about how in, in the gray place or the gray town that everyone's selfishness causes them to continually turn against each other and separate further and further. And I think that's consistent with the way Scripture describes hell as this place of outer darkness, of of torment. And I think that the torment uh, allowed by God 
is that the person gives themselves over fully to be as self-absorbed as they can. And that makes hell. I mean, we see what it's like to experience a, a, a bit of hell on earth when we get selfish. We know our life can get miserable, and everyone around us becomes miserable. Uh, so I think Lewis's idea is, is fundamentally sound there and reflects uh, the tenor of Scripture, although I don't know if there's an explicit passage that I could point to that would talk about it that way. The, very good point, very good point. And another thing I was thinking about is you were talking about the idea of human involvement. And I, and I, I like you, also uh, believe that human freedom and sovereignty can coexist together. I don't think they have to be mutually uh, exclusive. Uh, but talking about the idea that uh, it, that it seems as if those who hold to purgatory, maybe not all, but it seems like there's this idea that God's grace wasn't sufficient sufficient to remove all of our sins, so there needs to be this step to remove uh, any extra sin that we have or something like that. Could that not lead to the idea that uh, that, that, that salvation, while not maybe you know, explicitly stated, but implicitly could be a work-based salvation, which if you follow a... It seems like it could be a slippery slope, even leading to the idea that you really don't need a savior, which could lead to what Pelagius actually taught. Uh, do, yeah. do you see? Do you see there there being a possibility of some type of slippery slope involved yeah, in that idea of thinking? I, I do. I, I, I like the way you connect those those movements of theology. Um, I, I don't know of any uh, evangelical. Who advocates for purgatory that would that would openly identify as being Pelagian or even semi-Pelagian? But I do think that when we bring in this idea of a synergy, and we are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But remember, Paul said, "Knowing it's God who works in you to will and to do according to His good pleasure." There is that that cooperation, but that cooperation is all of grace, and I think that that unknowingly. This, this idea that, that human effort can do more than we think can come in the back door. Uh, I think it also can lead to not only this idea of a works-based salvation, um, but I think it can bring about something that works what it means to say that God is love. Because I think there's a good impulse in the evangelical who advocate purgatory in particular but this, is, this flows out of our commitment to God being love, and love really wants change, and love wants change to be genuine and chosen, and I, I resonate with all of that. But I think what can ultimately happen is we can also say that love redefines truth as it needs to. So, for example, you'll find some purgatory evangelicals who will at least countenance the idea that because God is love, he knows that in the right circumstances, certain people would choose him. That right circumstance may be death. And so after death, it's possible, theoretically, that the loving thing for God to do would let them come to him. And post-mortem conversion enters into the discussion. Uh, and that's, those aren't my, that's not my language. That's their language. In, in Jerry Walls' book on purgatory, he mentions that possibility. And I, I'm not saying he advocates explicitly for it, but he certainly 
does leave open that discussion. And I think that that then runs into challenges with where we get the meaning. The locus of the meaning is in the text. Uh, verses like to, to uh, the absent bodies be present at the Lord. Verses like it's appointed man to die once and in the judgment. And it, it, what ends up happening is we, we, we change our fundamental theology uh, in a bad way when we let those things in. So not only does it bring about the possibility of works-based salvation, but I think it also it, it brings about the idea of post-mortem conversion. And, and those are huge issues if you take the text of Scripture, I think, seriously. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, TJ, we're about out of time. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners? First of all, thank you for, for this opportunity. I'm so blessed by your ministry. I, I, I would leave this thought. This is a discussion that, that is not easily dismissed. We need to take seriously those who uh, hold to purgatory, both as Catholics and as evangelicals. We need to understand their position. And we need to represent it fairly, but we also don't need to be afraid to say it's unbiblical. It has major theological problems. And rationally, it, it, it creates some contradictory dilemmas. We can take hope that if we close our eyes in the next moment in the land of God, we will open our eyes in the land of the living. And we will be with Christ. Because I, I agree with what Paul said. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord in joy and in fullness in the project. Amen. For the believer, it's just going to get better and better still. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, TJ, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we want to, once again, thank you for being with us on the podcast. And we want to encourage everyone to go out and buy TJ's uh, latest book called Absent from the Body and Present with the Lord, uh, Biblical, Theological, and Rational Arguments Against Purgatory. You've been listening to the Biblical Christian Podcast. And this is Brian Childress and God bless. We'll see you back next time. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Bellator.